Welcome, listeners, to a, another episode of the Editor's Desk, the First Think podcast where we speak with authors of material in First Things magazine, which, if you are not subscribing, you really, really have to. All the cool kids read First Things. And I have with me today Mark Bauerlein, my colleague. And we want to talk about his review of The Summer of Theory, History of a Rebellion, 1960 to 1990 by Philippe Flesch, and uh, recently translated from German. And uh, so uh, welcome, Mark. Uh, I'm glad to join you, Rusty. This is a subject near and dear to my to my to my to my youth, uh, actually, or maybe my twenties. I ought to put it that way. And that 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 was. I'm glad that Dan Hitchens asked me to take a look at this book because it took me back to my own grad school days. Maybe it went back to your grad school days as well. No, I was uh, in theology, not in lit. But but it's it's a great it's a great title. No, but, to but kind of didn't play Finney... on Summer of Love, isn't that? It's really a fun title. <laughs> Did, Rusty, the didn't theory, theory hit religion studies in the 80s? Not, no. I mean, it did in, but not in my program. So I I remember, of course, Yale's complet department was, you know, I had Paul Deman. So it was all, so it was certainly in the air. And I went to one of Jacques Derrida's seminars. Um, in yeah, uh, that because he was on some sort of contract and he would come to Yale for a couple of weeks every year. Um, so yes, it was, uh, and I did take a class with Cornell West at Union Theological Seminary as when I was in between college and grad school, and we read Foucault and Derrida and those sorts of things. So, but no, my program was you know, we read John Calvin and Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, so I got a question for you. Yeah. So you, one of the premises of that moment, as you said, it was that heady time that you were very immersed in, in the 80s and into the 90s, when reading could be revolutionary. So how could reading, I mean, <laughs> you know, I can see Molotov cocktails revolutionary. But how can reading be revolutionary? This was one of the striking things about that era. Reading was or should be a revolutionary act. Now, when they said reading, they didn't mean, you know, sitting down with a, with a crime novel and opening it up. Reading was really deep interpretation, analysis, demystification, deconstruction, Reading became a very complicated process. And while that old form of exegesis, you know, 19th century, uh, doing your marginalia and, and everything, would be sort of going deep into the intellectual, academic exercise, this reading actually meant turning out to the world and understanding the world in revolutionary ways. But you had to go through a theoretical illumination before you could really do it right. That was the amazing thing about these Marxists, these leftists in the 1950s and 60s, like Adorno, 
they looked at Marx's old stricture. You know, it's not enough to interpret the world. We have to change it. We've got to, we've got to radicalize the world once more. They said, you know, Marxism hasn't really made the gains in the West beyond really the intellectual world. The workers are not uniting the way we thought they would after World War One and, and the Depression. And so they turned and said, you know, the reason why we haven't been able to undo the system, the man, the establishment, capitalism, is because we insufficiently theorized our understanding of things. We don't read deeply, carefully, critically, theoretically enough. That was the position. And I quote in the review a lot of quotes from the book of these Maoists, right? These German radicals who, who you know, flirt with Bader Meinhof saying, you know, we really got to get our theory right before we can go into the world and act in genuinely revolutionary ways. If we are insufficiently theorized, well, we'll get co-opted, we'll get absorbed, you know, we'll end up losing our radical edge and simply reinscribing, that would be one of the one of the popular terms. We will reinscribe the old ways so that we have uh Baudrillard, you know, I'll I'll give the American pronunciations of the of these of these uh names, Derrida and Baudrillard. Leotard. Uh, Baudrillard, he attacked the Green movement for being insufficiently radical, for, for having a, a certain, nat, you know, insufficiently theorized naturalist understanding of, of time and history and, and the earth. So you gotta, you gotta be a really careful, informed, astute, hyper self-conscious reader in order to be a revolutionary that 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 was the going that was the going thinking in the 60s and 70s and it was intoxicating for you know people like me when i was 20 22 well i mean i i think it goes two ways uh, when i think of of this notion it, you got that great quote from Adorno. one reason why the world was not changed he says was probably the fact that it was not interpreted enough um, and I think of that as it kind of percolates into uh, to, into into sort of ordinary. Everybody who's gone to university now for the last two generations can can speak about controlling the narrative. And isn't that kind of the demotic way of saying what it is that this kind of intensive reading does? It allows you to take a touchstone of the Western tradition, the Iliad, or a Shakespearean play, and interpret it in such a way that you, the theorist, can control the narrative rather than the narrative controlling you. That's right. We've got to understand, the theorists would say, we inhabit narratives. We're born into stories, myths, which contain all these buried assumptions and they seem like air to us. They seem natural and ordinary. We don't notice them. We don't have critical reflection on them. We don't have distance. How do we get that distance? Well, 
we read Leotard on postmodernism, where Leotard argues against grand narratives, right? No meta narratives anymore are going to control us, direct us. You know, Hayden White, the historian, he writes mm-hmm. meta history, right? We've got to understand those those organizing narrative structures within which we do empirical examination of history, but the framework is not empirical. The framework, I mean, depending on where you come, the framework is a patriarchal construction. It is a a capitalist construction, a class construction. For Derrida, it would be more of a metaphysical construction based upon the Western, the history of the West, the episteme, as Foucault would put it. And we've got to step back and examine the frameworks. And that's a lot of the framework is narrative. A lot of the framework is not rational. It's it's more a rhetorically intensified set of characters, stories, patterns of behavior values and and and, and so on. All the all the non-factual components of our thinking. And that's why if you don't theorize, then again, you're just going to uh, repeat the past in in ever more farcical forms. Let's put it that way. (laughs) There's something to their claim that a kind of disciplined theory provides independence. I mean, I look at... uh, uh, I wrote, you know, I read that Baudrillard attack on on the Green Movement, and you know, there's something to that. <laughs> also, something like uh, one of the contemporary representatives, maybe is Giorgio Agamben, represents this tradition. Th- these these characters did have a lot of independence, you know, and so he, you know, Agamben said these really. Uh, things about the pandemic and it was just ruthlessly attacked. And, you know, people in universities don't want to say anything bad about the environmental. They don't say anything anything bad about anything that's popular um, in the chattering classes, whereas these characters really did seem to have the backbone to be able to say what they thought. Foucault? I mean, Foucault wouldn't wouldn't kowtow. I mean, Foucault, he would just... I mean, he. I mean, Foucault died in in the early '80s of of AIDS, but you know, in in those years, he he went his own way. I mean, Foucault. I, I quote one of the figures in the book, and just, I'll just say the book really profiles a guy who founded a press in in the late '60s, early '70s in Germany because he had become a genuine acolyte worshiper of Adorno. And he wanted to bring all this thought of the mid-20th century, German, and then the French 60s thought into Germany in cheap editions. And it was amazing, paperback editions, it was amazing all the great books that he presented to an intellectual public, a reading public in in Europe, in German, that, I mean, all, all the best people were in there because he was devoted to getting the word out and, and, and founding a press and publishing things 
That was just as radical as what the Red Brigade was doing. That was the that was the assumption by them. But they, you know, one one of his, I, I quote one of his uh, uh, workers and and who who became his 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 living girlfriend for for uh, several years. She said, you know, Foucault, Foucault, reading Foucault is like lightning. He writes like the devil. <laughs> these that guys, was a compliment. <laughs> these guys were spellbinding, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they were, uh, they were master figures. I think Baudrillard's early work, I mean, after he, his anti-Americanism, what, you know, is, I think is nonsense, but his early books, like for a critique of the political economy of the sign, I think it's brilliant stuff and it is still worth reading. You know, Derrida, I'll, I'll ask you, Rusty, Derrida was one of the most boring speakers, lecturers Unbelievably in the world. It was so, I mean, compared to Foucault, who was so charismatic in class, Oh, Derrida would put put everyone to sleep, and he'd go on forever. But Derrida's writing, some of those paragraphs, those sentences, those aphorisms that came out of the early essays in grammatology, they they were spellbinding, and they created disciples. Discipleship was a huge factor in this mass these master theorists, and we all wanted to be disciples. We were we were absorbed by this. Wait a minute. When I open a volume of John Keats and I read the, the those those stanzas in in Ode to a Nightingale, what I make of them really really counts. It really matters for the rest of all all the other parts of my life. This is not just a leisure activity. It's not just a job. It's not just an academic activity. This is real life. High stakes. Are, are involved in how I, I read those last two lines of, of Grecian urn that it, it, it was adventuresome. That's what, that's what the theorists gave us. Intellectual work could have an impact like dropping a, a, a pebble in the middle of a pond. It would spread. It, it, the, 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 the waves would go outward everywhere. And you know, Rusty, I, I think we, we got to remember something that the Democratic Party now, in so many ways, is shaped by people who went through humanities departments in the 1990s and read queer theory and who were doing a lot of the a lot of the theoretical feminist stuff that you said it becomes it takes a demotic form when they get out. But they they pass through this and it it. It has gender theory in 1990 is now in human resources in corporate America. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah, I think I look, I look back and yeah, I, I, I think it was, I never felt, felt any particular charge. I could see though that in retrospect, the allure was that the critical theory really created the possibility of, of, of something, of new thoughts. It opened up for many people. And that was something that is sort of the iron cage of the, of, um, of the status quo. It would allow, allow you to, as you said, and it was very exciting. For me, it was, didn't appeal because I, I was studying theology, which is, that, that explodes 
God's revelation explodes all conventional worldly wisdom, you know, um, uh, scandal to the Jew, uh, foolishness to the Greeks. Um, No, scandal to the Greek, foolishness to the Jew, as St. Paul says. So, so it didn't, it didn't, I was not a ripe subject, if you will, for, for the theory, but let's, let's pivot here. Well, let let, let me say one thing about that, Rusty. Yeah. It had great appeal for the young iconoclastic uh, atheist who wouldn't find in American society any institutions or structures of life that would give direction and shape to our energetic irreverence. These guys did. We got Nietzsche and Freud, and then we've got these contemporary figures who could give our atheism a a background. It could make it a noble endeavor, not just opposition, but in fact, an, an enlightened and dignifying uh, situation because we are in a line of great thinkers and these master theorists, we've got them, right? They give us, they give us confidence. They give us virtue in precisely in their radical, secular, irreligious undoing. Of yeah, the undoing and reliable things. Right. So I, I think it's it's kind of it, it's it's a sort of transcendence, although it's oddly a negative one, in the sense that instead of going up, if you will, to higher something higher, all these theories sort of went down, so to speak, to sort of what was really going on. And, you know, Derrida, you think that the text is giving you uh, the real, but it's actually constructing it through various strategies, um, uh, various logical and rhetorical strategies. So you, the reader, can, can see through, if you will. And, and that's, that, is a, that is a kind of transcendence. Although, as I said, it's interesting that whether it's, you know, it typically, typically goes down front for school people, it goes down to economic power, and uh, for the Freudian, it goes down to, 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 to various desires, and for the feminist, it goes down to patriarchy, what, well, whatever, whatever we have. But let, let, let's, let's pivot here. In the spirit of Don McLean, I want to ask you, what was the day the theory died? <laughs> Boy, you know, Rusty, I think theory died when uh, when identity politics uh, took theory and froze it. Not 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 eliminated theory because they all thought that the the gender theorists, the queer theorists. The political theorists in, in in literary studies, they thought that they were taking theory and applying it to real situations. So that when Derrida breaks down binary oppositions in pretty abstract ways, 
such as the opposition between nature and culture that he does in, in one of his essays. The, the gender theorists would say, now we can break down the opposition between man and woman to get that gender fluidity thing going. But it got too mechanically applied. It lost its freshness. Oh, it became very dogmatic. And predictable in ways that the original expression, oh, it was much, it was much more lightsome and and in in a way dynamic than that. So I think I think you know maybe we can put it the general American habit of making <laughs> all things pragmatic. Yes. That that I think over the course of the 90s I I saw that happening in the humanities and each time it seemed to me that whereas we were absorbed in things like the nature of the sign, right? I mean, it sounds it, it sounds silly, but well, it's a kind of metaphysical. It was metaphysical, kind of speculative, uh, highly conceptual. I mean, we saw Derrida as a deconstruction as a mode of conceptual analysis. Well, there's a sort of contemplative element to it to to sort of see, as I said, the language of seeing, yeah, related, I mean, to, con- related to contemplation as opposed to the language of doing. Derrida's biggest influence was Heidegger. And, you know, Heidegger had that mystical side to talk about the difference between It is such a strange... In fact, a book... uh, I've yet to read the book that really details how Heidegger was appropriated by the French scene in the 50s and into the 60s. It's so improbable that he would become the guru for essentially kind of left a kind of intellectual left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Given that, you know, uh, by my reading, he's a, he's a patron of, 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 uh, I mean, yeah, far from being a, a prophet of defense, he's a patron of solid things, or maybe even to a fault. Yeah. That's l- l- later Heidegger, all that stuff about the ground yeah, right? exactly. and, and the presences and, 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 and the gods. You talked about the gods. Yes, and later. waiting. And waiting poetry. To, I mean, know, finding, and you know. also waiting to receive. That's very much uh, letting go uh, and Galassenheit. And uh, um, guys, compared to theory, which is like super hyperactive, <laughs> you know, you're, you're operating on the text. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a lot of, as you said, it's, it's, there's a lot, it was a kind of um, intellectual acrobatics that were, I agree. I, sometimes I'd roll my eyes when I'd listen to these presentations, thinking that, yeah, that needs to be spelled out. That's a, that's the acrobat is doing. There's a lot of illusionism. That's right. Illusionist that's right. Uh, tricks in there. But and there were a lot of there were a lot of posers and bounders and wannabes and and people on the make <laughs> in in the in the theory world in America. The second generation. People and we saw the sectarianism just get ridiculous. And to me, this was this was losing again the kind of the kind of freedom and the creativity and a little bit of that Heideggerian, you know, thrownness. That that idea we're thrown into things, the risk elements 
that that went, you know, the Nietzschean play that Derrida highlighted so much, uh, th- that disappeared in the 80s when identity politics seized it and aimed theory uh, simply at, you know, received wisdom, common sense, uh, traditional understandings. That's why the 90s younger theorists, they didn't read the old stuff. They didn't need to. I mean, wait a minute. We, we are busy here undoing heteronormativity. Who needs Heidegger for that? <laughs> so you want to say, no, no, you got to work through, you got to work through Hegel. You know, I mean, they all began with the phenomenology of spirit. This is the grandfather text of post-structuralism. And Rusty, we know we had, if we, we were lucky to get through one page of Hegel in an hour, right? <laughs> you know, just what the heck does it mean that in itself and for itself are fundamentally different? Hegel, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, but you, you had to, you had to go through that, and all the theorists went through that classical training. Uh, Foucault and Derrida they, they got a very traditional education that the identity politicians didn't. You know, they 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 went through an, an American system in the, in the '90s that didn't force them. You gotta you gotta go through your Aristotle. You you've got. To, to read Descartes' meditations slowly. I, that, that, that to me was the day theory died, Rusty, when identity politics grabbed it and ran with it. Mm. You end, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this, you end in a very gnomic fashion, maybe your own uh, invitation to the reader to, to read and interpret you end with Heidi Paris's suicide and Peter Gente's death. And so the interpreter, Rusty Reno interprets, says, huh, is Bauerlein suggesting that it was always a dead end? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you, you wonder as they look back, you know, in, in, 2000, in year 2000, uh, Heidi was, was his, was, was Gente's, uh, lover, co-publisher at this press. Peter Gente was the man who, who founded it. And you, you wonder if uh, this was a dead end, that this kind of radical politics uh, certainly didn't, it, 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 it hit a lot of walls such as the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? And, and the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. What did that mean? The violence of the 70s, hard left, from the Red Brigade to the Black Panthers, they, they all fell apart, right? These, these radical groups who were trying to show with every step, you know, we're more radical than, than, than the other people. That status competition that, that it often sank into, you know, it, it, revolutionary energies, uh, they, they fizzle. Especially when you know the ordinary routines of life have to be lived. Uh, you can't always also, live on the edge. Yeah, and, yeah. Also, I would say too that that the greatest danger for the countercultural is to become mainstream. 
Oh yeah. all, the, all this stuff became mainstream. It, it, it all own, became its own kind of domesticated, yeah. highly domesticated way. Uh, cool, yeah. The conquest of cool, right? As Thomas Frank put it. Uh, I mean, look, look. Uh, in the Amer- in America, the counterculture of the fifties was actually a fresh, vibrant uh, mode of being. You know, by 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 the sixties. I mean, Jack Kerouac couldn't stand the hippies and 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 the yippies and 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 all of them. Kerouac of the fifties, he was he was out there, but uh, you know, Allen Ginsberg wrote some good poetry in the fifties. Oh, when he became famous and successful, you know, one poem was worse than the last. So, yeah, the the countercultural left it can't it can't it can't survive on success. You know, success <laughs> destroys it. But you know, it could be also rusty that. What I would highlight is, I think that they must have felt by 2000, reading was dead. You know, the great days of the master theorist coming out with a new book that was going to electrify everyone. They were waiting, you, you know, you would wait for what Althusser's next publication was it was like you know when we were in our in our suburban world waiting for led zeppelin's next album in 1975 (laughs) yeah you know what are they going to do this time these guys they were gurus for for many years there a theorist could be a philosopher a poet a thinker a guru a a master a master teacher a cult leader and you know, Rusty, I, I, I confess, I have a little nostalgia <laughs> for those times when reading really, reading really mattered. Interpretation and interpretation could really count. Foucault's long description, it's a tour de force at the beginning of Discipline and Punish. Uh, real, the real title oh, of that yeah. is Surveillance and Punishment of uh, the Surveillir et Punir was the French title. That description of the torture and execution. Oh, yes. I remember very well reading it for the first time. Of the regicide. Look, this it, it was stunning to read him in detail. And he got it all out of the archive. I know, you know, historians criticized Foucault for playing fast and loose with, with archival materials. But he loved the archive. That was his favorite place to be going over 17th century manuscripts, witnesses, to a public torture and a drawing and quartering this 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 uh, this regicide uh that was exciting it was exciting to to see what these people were coming up with next is anyone interested in Judith Butler's next book who cares i mean other other than the um, other than the the drudgery of having to read her her terrible prose ugh but your your point your point is well taken, and conservatives often look to the academy as uh, as an as the great enemy, and to and maybe rightly so. But I think in twenty twenty two at Harvard or Yale or Cal Berkeley, you know, third rate diversity officers have a lot more control over the atmosphere of the school than faculty members, and that the faculty members. However, whatever their ideas are, are increasingly irrelevant to, to the university, the tone and setting and mentality. So it must be kind of demoralizing for, for 
the teachers. Can you imagine Foucault being told what to do by... Can you imagine Foucault applying for a job and having to compose a diversity statement? Yeah, I mean, right. he, he would say, this is exactly the kind of bureaucratic control surveillance. It is precisely discipline and the threat of punishment that... I'm, I actually think a Foucauldian analysis of leftist institutions would be very illuminating because they are doing exactly power, knowledge, the control of truth, the determination of what words one may be used. Uh, this is, uh, they're living it out now. So, yeah, I mean, the, the but look, Rusty, the, we know the humanities now are just window dressing in higher education. One in 13 bachelor's degrees in 1970 were in English. One in 13 was, in, was an English major. Today, it's less than one in 50. Uh, nobody, I mean, these, these things are marginal parts of the campus at this point. In 1975, as you said, at Yale, everyone across the campus knew who Paul DeMond was and wondered what DeMond was up to. Everywhere. So we've seen the fall, the fall of the humanities in the last you know, 30, 40 years is, is now a material fact. Well, on that sad note, uh, we'll, we'll draw things to a close. But uh, to remind readers that First Things Magazine does remain a pleasure to read, a beacon, a light of uh, light in the darkness of the present time. So thanks, Mark, for your time. Thank you. All right.